Last night I was speaking to uh, a group of very different looking people. They were bikers, um, bandits, alcoholics, and quite frankly I felt right at home, <laughs> feeling a little nervous this morning. But I did decide, how am I going to dress? And I thought, I'm going to put the collar on this morning just to kind of freak out all you gnarly Baptists. Any of the Baptists <laughs> here? I am an Anglican priest. As Tony said, my name is Michael, and I will be 64 years old this Friday. And I... <clears throat> That's not how I felt in 2015 when I came back to life after having a horrible uh, kidney failure and literally dying and having three doctors say to my wife, you need to plan his funeral, we can't save him. And then when I came back, I was uh, telling the um, Gary and, and Barry this morning that I, I was kind of ticked off at God when I came back. I felt like, I don't need to be here. And I spent a week with God saying, yep, I got a plan. But he wasn't going to tell me what it was. It was very clear. And I want to talk to you about another uh, epiphany like that I had when I was a kid. So I was uh, 18. I was raised in a strong Christian family. And... When I was 18, I can remember specifically being on my knees, and I was praying to God, and I can remember the words I said, God, I'm ready to serve you. I am ready to serve you. Here I am. All these years later, I have a sense that I know God has a sense of humor, and I'm sure he was going like this. If you only knew how not ready you are. Thank you, Michael. But you got a lot of learning to do. I wanted to be the, uh, the prime minister. I wanted to fix this country. I was from a very fundamentalist church background. My brother and I joke that fundamentalists aren't fun and they're mental. But I only knew one way to kind of pray and think. It was either right it was, or it was wrong. And I wanted to be the prime minister of this country because I wanted to fix it, you know. I wanted to make it right. But I think I was hearing God's voice. I took a year off and went to a Bible college my first year after grade 13, and I went to Los Angeles. Not a good place to go when you're 19 near the beach. Anyway, part of the uh, field work, like many of you may have to do in seminary, was my work with inner city fatherless boys. Had five of them. Man, they taught me a lot. And then they took me to Mexico, and I can remember standing in a horrible barrio watching women struggling under heavy burdens, men lying drunk in the doorway, little kids naked and playing in the mud. And I remember praying my fundamentalist prayer. And I prayed, God, whose fault is this? And that's what I prayed. And it was one of the few times 
in my life that I really had an epiphanal voice from God say, it's your fault. It's your church's fault. It's your country's fault. Michael, it's your fault. It's your church's fault. It's your country's fault. And again, like God virtually never does, he doesn't explain to me what that means. And I kind of heard him say, now go figure that out. Go figure that out. I came home to Canada instead of going into law, becoming a lawyer and then a politician and, of course, the prime minister. I took my degree in psychology, decided I was going to work with people after my year at Bible college. And, man, I thought I was, well, no, I was brilliant. I was brilliant. I was 24, and I just knew everything. And I started working for Christian Horizons. Anybody know Christian Horizons? I think the uh, proper terminology is people with cognitive and physical disabilities. I was working with a mentally handicapped. And I was working there two years, and one day I was sitting in the living room of the residence where I was working. There was 10 residents, adults, and one of them was homesick, Donna, and she uh, was probably 15 years older than me. I was in my 20s, and she came into the living room where I was doing some paperwork, and she stuttered, and it took her about a minute to say, Mike, would you like a coffee? And, of course, the coffee was a mess, and I just turned and looked at Donna. I said, no thanks, Donna. But a week later, she was homesick again, and she didn't know I was watching as she was in the kitchen. And I quietly stood and watched for half an hour that it took her to make a coffee. And I realized this smart twit wasn't so smart. Here I had totally dissed this precious woman who had spent half an hour, yeah, with her tremors. The coffee looked terrible, but she was giving me this gift. And I thought, Clark, you're an idiot. So you do what idiots do, you go back to school, right? And I started at OTS, this school, 1978. And I have to confess, I lasted one term and I thought, this is so dry and boring, I'm going to lose my faith. And I thought, I'm going to get on the cops. I'm going to join the police. I'm going to get the living snot kicked out of me, and I'm going to learn about life, and I'm going to go for two years. Now, I kept doing my seminary part-time. In fact, at one point, I lasted longer than two years on the cops because it turned out I was really good at it. Every time I sneezed, I cut a bad guy, so they kept promoting me. And I think I'm likely the only student of this institution that ever sat in a seminar class in a business suit as a detective with a 38 under my arm. Any other students got a 38 under your arm this morning? 
Yeah, I think I was the only one. In fact, the police were paying for my, my seminary. And you know, I uh, got exactly what I wanted and much that I didn't want in my learning on the police. And it wasn't long before I realized the world that I had been trained by my parents and my church to know and how God ran things, it wasn't the world that I was associating with. And before the word post-traumatic stress was even a diagnosis, I had it. My, uh, at 30 years old on the, the police force I'd been on for four years, my locker partner on a beautiful August Sunday morning was brutally set up and violently murdered. And the murderer who stabbed him 50 times, shredded Dwayne's young body, and then took Dwayne's gun and shot his own head off. And because I was 30 years old, the oldest on the shift, I was stuck in the morgue with those two bodies for continuity of evidence. I sat for six hours. My beloved dead friend and the bad guy that killed him. Six hours in that fridge. At that time, they did nothing uh, for guys like our young platoon. Like I said, I was the oldest at 30 of 10 guys that were there. We did our shifts. That was a Sunday morning. We did our shifts Monday, Tuesday. We were in the color guard for the funeral Wednesday. Went to court on my day off Thursday. Started midnight shifts Friday. And by Tuesday night after a terrible uh, domestic dispute where a little kid got smashed up, at three in the morning, I got in my cruiser and drove out to the country. In fact, uh, in retrospect, it was probably very close to where my little church, St. Stephen's, is right now. And I drove out and parked in a farmer's field, and I was going to kill myself. Now, I believe in angels, because as I was sucking on my gun... I think a big fat one was sitting on a hammer of that gun and it wouldn't go off. And again, another epiphany, God's voice, that I heard my name, Michael. Michael. Now you would think that if God was going to talk to me and prevent me from killing myself, there'd be a lot more words spoken by him and things said, but no. He knew my pain was so deep... I was so busted. My soul was so mangled. The only thing that would save me is knowing that somebody knew my name. I'd been a Christian many years, but somebody knew my name. And I heard God saying, Michael. Okay, God. And I put the gun down. And I prayed the next whole week. God, get me out of here. Get me out of here. And he said, no. He said, no. He got more to learn. I stayed another uh, four years. And finally, Rick Tobias, some of you may have heard Rick as a prof here. 
was teaching a course and I was taking that course while I was a cop. And at the end of the term, he won my heart over to work with street youth and I became the director of Evergreen in uh, Toronto and began working with street kids. I thought by that point I had seen everything. But I got to tell you, the learning curve went straight up. I worked with kids who... The God-ordained people that were supposed to love and care for them the most were the ones that had hurt them the worst. And I worked with kids here and overseas. I did many uh, mission trips. Some of the most traumatic for me was in Mexico where I saw little kids, eight years old, out begging with one hand because the other one had been cut off. And I asked my World Vision uh, interpreter, translator, what had happened. And that little kid's father had cut his hand off, bandaged it up, and sent him out so he could be more destitute looking as he begged for the case, sake of the family. I was experiencing moral trauma through my policing experience, Yeah, PTSD, but moral trauma. And what I came to realize in my work with kids and why I'm even telling you all this, Tony talked about a scholarship in youth ministry and some of you will go into youth ministry. Please, dear God, do not be naive about who it is you're dealing with. And particularly some of the guys. Guys will never come out with what's really happened to them, especially if it was a mother's abuse or a female that abused them. It's a shame. And shame was one of the things that I felt because I couldn't save any of these kids. Shame was what these kids felt. I can remember flying to Rideau Hall in Ottawa to get the Order of Canada You know what my prayer was to God? Please don't let them find out. Who I really am. Don't let them find out who I really am. Because they'll take it away from me and I'll be even more ashamed than I am. I had worked with thousands of kids. Couldn't save them the horror, the abuse. Here's what I want to put on your radar today, and I'm going to end with this. Psalm 25 is a precious uh, psalm, and it begins, and it's a psalm of David, and again, we all know David's history. He was a murderer. He was an adulterer. He took Bathsheba, and he sent her husband out to be murdered. And later on, he writes this, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let me be ashamed. Make me to know your ways, O Lord, and teach me your paths. I was blessed. I didn't realize what I had at the time, but I was blessed for six years, the last six years of Henry Nouwen's life. He 
he was my spiritual director. I called him one day when running Evergreen, and it must have sounded so desperate when I get up there. He said, I don't take calls like that, but you sounded so desperate, I thought you were going to die. And took me on. My time with Henry was 7.30 on Wednesday mornings. So coming from Brampton off, I'd have to get there very early just in case there was traffic. And never got there early enough not to find Henry seated on the floor of the chapel meditating. And Henry started to teach me how to meditate. It's one of the things I want to encourage. No matter what you are going to do with your career, you're calling before God. I want to encourage you to spend time every morning in meditation. Now, I've got pretty severe attention deficit disorder. And so what Henry taught me to do was to find that place and sometimes that's physically that place where it's most conducive to hearing God's voice. And put yourself in the presence of God. And he said, you Protestants, you talk too much. He said, if you want to hear God, how come you yap, yap, yap? He wants you to shut up and listen. He literally said that to me. So he taught me. And I used to come in from uh, Brampton on my way to Evergreen, and I would stop at the lake. The lake was perfect, Lake Ontario. All there was was a horizon. If a darn seagull went by, it distracted me. What I would do is view myself in the throne room of God, and it was so precious. Here I was struggling with all these street kids I had coming in, trying to figure it out. I had 19 young staff I was trying to encourage, and I was... Crying out, God help me. You know what happened? In that throne room of God, it's not the hullabaloo in Revelation, just Jesus in me. Jesus on the throne. And it was within a matter of two or three weeks that I envisioned Christ getting off the throne and coming and sitting on the floor with me, in front of me. Well, that's pretty cool. Six months. And I'm crying out, God, teach me, help me. He'd get off the throne every day. He'd come, he'd sit in front of me. He'd smile at me. I would sense he was touching my cheek. That's great, Lord, but I want answers. You know, after six months, I finally heard him say, Michael, I love you. I thought, yeah, of course, you're... You're Jesus. You're supposed to love me. That went on for another six months. We're talking into a year, and that's all he ever said to me. I love you. And after a year, the verbiage changed. Michael, I like you. And I thought, what a digression. <laughs> but of course, he's Christ. He's God. And he knew I was raised from knee high to believe that God loves me. I never liked myself. And he knew that. Michael, I like you. And look at what he was doing. Here I was, working with the hardest core street kids you can imagine. Every day. God, teach me how to work with these kids. 
And if I'd only had ears to hear. You get off your high horse. You go and you be with them. You certainly don't dress in this stupid suit. You be with them. You get down where they are. And Michael, there's not going to be a ton of words to say. They're too deeply busted. Be close. Know their name. Know their name. And love them and like them. You know what? When I took that back to my staff and we started learning that and employing that and doing what Jesus was asking us to do, the lid blew off evergreen. Kids started coming to Christ in droves. I want to encourage you as you uh, pursue whatever ministry God's calling you into. Not many of you are going to have these stupid callers. A lot of you may work in uh, ministry with kids. Remember the woundedness of the soul that happens in the moral trauma that people suffer. I can remember a guy from my church, one of the elders, came down to see what I was doing at Evergreen. He was in there for five minutes. Came out and looked at me and he said, this is dirty ministry. What the heck does that mean? This was dirty ministry. Jesus gets off the throne. He does it to this day as I meditate. Comes down, sits on the floor with me. And he's with me. And he's about love. He's about love. I want to encourage you, whatever else we learn theologically, bring that love of Christ that's so desperately needed into uh, people's lives. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I just ask now that you would bring your Holy Spirit of love and touch each of our souls in this room this morning. And I pray, God, your love will carry us throughout this day and always in Christ's name. Amen. And now, because I'm a priest and I can, I'm going to give you an Anglican blessing. And I might even genuflect, you never know. But here's the blessing I want to give you. May the blessed light of God be on you, a light without and a light within. May the blessed sunlight of his love shine on you and warm your heart until it glows like a great fire so that the stranger may warm herself at it and also a friend. May God always bless you, love you, and keep you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Take off. Go eat.